1: The Ball Podcast. Welcome to the show, brought to you in association with Levi Solicitors.
2: You're not Michael Normanson; that's Rob Conlon. Wills, probate, conveyancing. You're actually better at it than him. I just feel imbued by his spirit sat here. It's because you're sat in the chair, yeah. yeah. I feel more miserable how, as well. how
3: long, though, can you banter those three words for, do you think, realistically? Years? I mean, when, it,
1: when it comes to flogging each, a joke to months? death. Yeah, when it comes to flogging a joke to death, this is the home for
3: that. <laughs> I was going to say, if it's lasted
1: this long. <laughs> yeah uh it's 15% off on those what we call the uh, the big 3 wills probate Convention with levis solicitors 10% discount on your legal fees on everything else levis solicitors.co.uk forward uh, it's not phil hay it's your phil hay <laughs> it is monday club it's confusing because it's not monday we are getting that changed i do keep asking but everything takes time doesn't it let Legionites' performance in the transfer market it, hey it,
3: boom um it it makes you wonder if anybody actually phones up levis with the right code <laughs> you listen to this and they go, What are we supposed to say? Is it yeah. full of good Phil Hey? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, they Try got the legal services for you,
1: for your business, and you can get the discount. Fifteen percent Will's probate conveyancing. It's Monday Club when you contact Levi's. Yeah, into business, into business, down to business. And um last time we spoke, Phil, we were a bit pressed for time at the start of the week, so we can expand on some of the stuff that's happened. Ampadu is now confirmed, wasn't quite confirmed when we spoke last, but he's in the door, number
3: one. It was suddenly a really busy 24, 48 hours Monday and Tuesday between Ampadu and Greta Steinson coming in as technical director and the takeover finally getting there as well, which um, which had to happen. But yes, Ampadu becomes signing number one. They've done him on four-year contract with the option of a fifth as well. £7 million up front, which I think is pretty good value for him and decent fee by championship standards. I think pretty achievable add-ons of about £3 million, which will... In the end, they earn Chelsea somewhere in the region of ten million pounds in total. If it all um, if it all pays off as it's supposed to, they're actually pretty good at that. Chelsea, pretty good at making money on the fringe players. They've been doing it for for a long time. But I think for Leeds, they they definitely needed to get something in the door. Definitely need to get something over the line. He seems like a pretty good start to
1: me. And seven rising to ten. Good value.
3: I would say so. Yeah, I think so for Wales international and somebody who is is definitely well thought of. I think the thing for Ampadu is that he has been he's been on the loan merry-go-round for a little while now. He's had two seasons in Italy. He's had Sheffield United as well. He was no longer thought of as, at Chelsea as this big development project, as he had been three or four years ago. He, he did seem to get very much lost in the churn of um, head coaches, managers down there. But also in the, the, the spell, particularly under Mauricio Sarri, where he didn't play much. And then the move to Leipzig, which again didn't get him much in the way of game time. That seemed to shift him from being this prospect who Chelsea might develop into a major first-team player, into somebody who looked like his career was going to carry on elsewhere. And I think for him, he wants somewhere where he can settle, wants somewhere where he can can play longer term. And four years plus one, if the, the fifth-year option kicks in, certainly gives him that chance. And it doesn't hammer us for um, profit and sustainability either,
1: do we? It's like one and three-quarter million on the books this year, which is a lot lower than some of the fees we've been paying out recently for players who are no longer even here.
3: Yeah, it's always the way with fees, isn't it? And this is where it, it all gets confusing is that you never pay it up front or you very rarely pay it up front. There are rare exceptions. Um, there were a couple at Leeds last season with Phillips and Rafinha. But no, it, on on paper, it's a lot of money to commit to a player for a championship club or a fairly, fairly sizable amount. But it's not as if 10 million quid goes flying out the door in one hit. So no, it shouldn't affect them too much in that sense.
1: Come to you on this one, Rob, actually. We've not um, heard from you on any of our shows about Ampadu, the, the state of play at the minute. Are you quite happy with it? Does it make sense to you as a sign-in, the fee, the sort of level we're shopping at?
2: Yeah, I mean, those 24 hours at the start of the week just felt like a big relief. It was like, right, we've signed a player, the takeover's done, we've got a technical director, there was a story about Willie Nonso not having a release clause and it just felt like, oh, it doesn't have to be terrifying. Like It's a start of something now that we can build on. With Ampadu, I kind of want Leeds to be signing players in that mid-twenties range of 26, 27-ish like I think I said on a recent show like Luke Halen was that age when Bielsa came in where they kind of know what it's all about but Ampadu does have a lot of experience despite being quite young and I almost like that he's already had setbacks and it's not all just been plain sailing for him like a lot of the players we signed last summer, they'd only really known success and even players like Rocker, when he'd been at Bayern, he'd not really played much but he still ended that with like two league titles and a Club World Cup I was looking at the other day same with Kristensen; it didn't really work out for him at Ajax, but he won a league and a cup double. And you think, well, is that really preparing you for a life at Leeds United? Well, three relegations. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Hopefully, it's a bit better than that. We'll see how he copes with the championship because he has been playing in Syria the last two seasons, and I don't think he's played in the championship yet. But as a start, seems promising to me. Part of the problem
3: for him has been that there's been no consistent framework for what he's for his his career path or what he's supposed to be doing. So every club that he's gone to as you mentioned, have struggled in their division and not you know, not predominantly because he's been in the team. But they've played in a different way to Chelsea or to the way Chelsea were playing at the time when when he was moving out. It's no real continuity tactically or, or, or for his development. And I think if, I, I was saying this to Michael on the previous show, I think if this was a championship signing, you'd wonder if they were kind of doing the victor orders in the sense of going for somebody who definitely at this stage, is not proven at Premier League level. You couldn't suggest that he ha- that he was. He's played in C D I, he's played in the Premier League with Sheffield United, but that's not the same thing. In the Championship, I think you are actually, you are actually investing in somebody who should have the credentials and should have the ability to be good in that league, which is why I, I feel fairly optimistic about this deal. In no way suggesting that on its own, it converts Leeds into a strong team and and a strong squad. They need more than Ampadu alone, but I think it's a good start.
1: I know we don't know how the squad's going to look by the end of the window but as it stands at the minute even if we retain some or the majority of what we've got at the minute it looks, looks like a fairly strong position to my eyes I don't know if it's just my my
3: pre-season optimism that's kicking in I think there's the basis of a really strong team there what I would question is whether or not there's enough of a squad to get you through 46 games and even though you do need a really strong 11 and if you look particularly at Farker's teams at Norwich the players he leaned on some of them were so good at, at delivering for him Pookie, Buendia Oliver Skepp in midfield who, who was on loan from Spurs and is back at Spurs somebody else who Farka I think would love if he could get him but I mean he just seems to be quite heavily involved Skepp and would cost a lot of money as well but you know he lent on those players and they were, they were really good for him but he had a squad and he had equally good or comparatively good players that he could rely on when he needed to change things around injuries or suspensions form whatever else the things that catch up with the over 46 games where I think you could put together a, actually a really strong dynamic 11 with Leeds, with players who other clubs would definitely take, Sinistera, Nonto, and others, it's the depth that I think they probably need to work in. They need, they need players for the, the starting 11, there's no question about that. But you, you tell me if you think otherwise. I don't look at the, the 20 that they would have and think it's necessarily quite there when it comes to seeing you through a championship season as either automatic promotion candidates or, or going up through the playoffs. No, it still looks imbalanced to me. I think it's the midfield that needs most work. I think we're going to fulfil Marcelo Bielsa's
1: dream and just play an 11 of wingers (laughs) and go up doing that. Although although, um, Farka and I'm going to say these words very carefully, likes to play relatively narrow, doesn't he? It's not all about making the pitch as big as possible on both sides at all times.
3: Well, Buendia, for example, there was a bit of the Pablo Hernandez's there in that he played on the right of a three with Hernandez. It was more like the right of a four under Bielsa. I always used to look at Hernandez as a bit of a kind of false seven in the sense that positionally, and, and on paper, you would think of him as a right winger, just looking at the way that the team was drawn up. But he used to drift all over the place and he used to play centrally a lot. He, he was very hard to track and because of that, he was really dangerous when it came to goals and assists. And you found the same with Buendia. He would score plenty of goals for Norwich. He would come up with assists too. So yeah, you're right. But behind the nine with Farker, it can quite often look a little bit more like three tens rather than a 10 and and two out-and-out wingers. But he will use a certain degree of width. He'll want his full-backs to push on as much as they can as well. Uh, Rob and I were talking before we came on about the importance of whoever plays at 10, you know, directly behind his his lone centre-forward. And that still feels to me like one of the positions that's going to need addressed. I think in most areas of the team, you could pick players out of the squad who could certainly do a job for you there or do a very good job. But at 10, at the moment, I'm not quite sure who you would be going for.
1: Do you think we can keep Sinistera? And if we do, wouldn't that sort of position be ideal for him cutting in from, let's say, the left? Um, I mean, it's, it's the same part of the pitch that, that Willy Nantes occupies as well. So we've
3: actually got a bit of an embarrassment of riches there, haven't we, to an extent? Well, I think with Sinistera, and I noticed this under Marsh, however you try to play him and whether you want to be narrow in that line or whether you want specific width, he will end up giving you width anyway. Um, and I think you get a bit of that from Nonto, you know, that regardless of the fact that you're perhaps not looking for that out and out from them, and Marsh never was asking for that from them, Sinistera could still be a threat out wide and could still play as a winger. Will he stay? I think it's possible that Leeds can keep him. I definitely think that, but it's really hard to say because it's all going to depend on who is offering what. And I do think as we get into August, that's when it will really start to knuckle down the question of is Harrison staying, is Harrison going, is Tyler Adams sticking around Sinistera nonto, others who who leads want to keep, but are maybe wary of, of bids coming in for them. That's the sharp end and that's when you really find out.
1: Yeah, I mean Parag was it was it in the letter in the YEP said we, you know, we've got to prepare ourselves for some departures. That, yeah. that will happen. It's always sad seeing people go, but we're going to build a squad to be proud of.
3: Well, for example, there is a lot of noise, particularly in Italy, about Nonto and Everton. Nobody is denying that Everton like Nonto. There is a, a the Mixed messages on this. At the Everton end, they're saying that there hasn't been a formal bid to Leeds. At the Leeds end, the message we're getting is that there was a formal approach from Everton and that the, the valuation that was out there of about, about £50 million was pretty accurate and was also knocked back. They do have the advantage with him that he doesn't have a release clause in his contract. So they, they're not actually obliged to sell, but you know how it is if you have a player who's starting to agitate. And I'm not saying that he is starting to agitate, but if that was to happen and if there was... You know, an effort on his part, on the part of his camp, to move him on and move him out of the championship to higher division, then you suddenly have a decision to make and you have to decide, can you retain this player? Is he going to be happy enough to, to do what you want him to do? Or do you actually have to to cash in? So I think Maratti is right. I think there will be departures. I think there'll be departures that Leeds would rather avoid. But that's the life of a relegated Premier League club, really, isn't it? The same as going after somebody like Carl Darlow and finding that that Bournemouth are in the mix too and, and trying to stop you.
1: Uh, with Steinson in as well, it's interesting to see how that one unfolds because you've obviously got Nick Hammond there at the minute as well, handling transfers. And we've got a confirmed job title for Steinson now, haven't we?
3: Yes, technical director, which is different to director of football, although it does. Is it not Do technical you... director and transfers? Yes, it's a bit like the Judean People's Front, isn't it? Yeah. It all seems to lend itself to being the same thing. In, in the same way as that's when, the second
1: Monty Python reference
3: we've and, had on the shows this week. Yeah, well, in, in the same way as when Farker came in and we were told he's manager, not head coach. And you thought to yourself, yeah, but it's semantics, really, isn't isn't it? There's there's no difference. But actually, I think in his mind, in Farker's mind, there is a difference because in certain head coach models, you have a director of football who pretty much managers recruitment. In some cases, we'll decide which players you're taking. We'll hoist players onto you. We'll, we'll say, this is who we want to sign. You make it work. And there are head coaches who are happy with that. Farker was really clear when he came in that he definitely, definitely wanted a big say in transfers, that he needed the final say when it came to who they were approaching, who they were actually going to take. And that basically, he'd be able to build the squad in his own image. It would, would be his call. So I think it is relevant the fact that, that he's asked for that and, and the fact that he is a manager by title, as opposed to head coach. Steinson, I think it's fair to say that Steinson will not have the same seniority that Orta did. Orta would sit in board meetings. Orta was always seen as on a par with somebody like Angus Kinnear, seen as more senior than the head coach in, in most instances. Um, what you'll have now with the structure is Marathi, obviously as chairman and other directors like uh, Reed Klein-Thomas and Peter Lowy. Kinnear in the role of um, chief executive but then below Kinnear you have this tier of management answerable to him really in the way that he's answerable to Marathi, which will be Steinson and Nick Hammond who's sticking around for now and actually I think Leeds have been pretty impressed with some of the work he's done, might consider trying to keep him on longer beyond this. Also Farker obviously, Adam Underwood who's been academy manager since 2009 has moved into the job of head of football operations which is a logistical position, really. Logistics. Is that looking of, after Adam Forshaw? Um, no, that is obviously that is the Rob Price role, who is head of <laughs> medicine and performance. Um, but football operations—that was a really weak your, joke. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, it was. It was going you know, to come down and kill you, Forshaw, <laughs> isn't it? Um, it's player care. It's you know the logistics of making sure that departments run properly, that everybody's got what they need, that aroundabout facts work. Everything is, is looked after. So no coaching, no analysis. That's not what it involves, but it is, it is essentially logistical. And then you've got something like Hannah Cox who looks after contracts and paperwork, makes sure leads are compliant with rules and everything else, head of football administration. And then we mentioned Rob Price who has been there for a long time and is the head of the medical department. So you have that kind of tier, uh, that tier of management below Kinnear. And I think in terms of recruitment anyway, it probably creates a degree of separation from board level that wasn't necessarily there previously.
1: Interesting to say that that Hammond might stay on. Then, so if you've got Steinson who's in charge of, of technical matters, but also transfers, then where would somebody else, another, fit in? Whether it's Hammond or someone else.
3: Well, clubs are very active on recruitment front these days, so it's not as if you don't need several pairs of hands. Whether Hammond would want to stay, whether Leeds in the end, at the end of this window, would want him to stay, we'll have to see. At the moment, they're just talking about the fact that he has a short-term contract that runs to the end of the window and they're expecting him to see it out and the fact that Steinson has come in as technical director doesn't change the need for Hammond to be here as far as we can see. There'd um, have, have to be a handover wouldn't there anyway? Of course you know, there would be Yeah, you the can middle just, of the window. You know, chuck your, your files onto <laughs> Steinson's desk and say look mate it's, it's all there you just have to have to flick through it but also I think the structure does leave does it kind of leave the door open to the scope for leads to go back to a director of football model if on reflection they felt like they needed it if they felt that in the end they did need somebody more senior or somebody who could have a bit more overarching authority you know I guess at the sort of level that Kinnear is at then they they could do that, um, but for now they, this seems to be the setup that they're going with. So is that something like director of football operations? Maybe you call that or whatever.
2: Possibly, yes. Ste- Invent your own title. Steinson doesn't strike me as a man you'd want to argue with. Judging by the profile of him and the athletic.
3: No, I would say so. No, um, but it seems to be pretty pretty well thought of in the game. Fairly highly highly rated, but no, think... no
1: question marks about the Everton spell
3: people well, say, he, point out that their recruitment's not exactly been dazzling and they're in, they're in a great big financial it, hole at the minute. It's not been dazzling except he wasn't um he wasn't the head of the department over there. He had brands uh, above him. In the same way that at Tottenham he was you wouldn't have classed him as number 1 when it came to the recruitment strategy and and everything else. So uh, when I say he was really well thought of at Fleetwood people will say to me well that that was Fleetwood. But I think he's probably cut his teeth and, and earned his stripes to to the level where he he's, he merits this job. And they did interview other candidates, you know, they did speak to other people and they clearly think that firstly, he's right for the job, but secondly, he's right to come in now and make a difference. Because if you go back to the statement when Hammond was appointed, it did say quite clearly, we're in the market for a director of football and we'd aim to make that appointment round about October in order for them to focus on the January window, whereas, you know, Nick Hammond will look after the business uh, through the summer and up until the end of August. So that was very much in the thinking, but as it is at the moment, it's Steinson in as technical director. Interesting to see if there's any, I say interesting to
1: see, we won't never know, I guess, but um, whether behind the scenes there's been a little bit of skewing about targets, whether Steinson comes in with
3: his own ideas at this point and, and, and where it leads us next. Well, I think not only Steinson, but I think you can safely assume that Farker will have come in with his own ideas and his own targets. And, you know, he spoke to Ampadu before he signed. He was given the sign off on that in the sense that it was a case of if Farker doesn't want him, you don't do it. But Farker did want him, so, so it was done. I think it's quite easy to get bogged down in the, I guess, the technicalities of who has what title, how it all fits together. The critical thing with this stuff is that the relationships work in a way, which means that they all function really well. They're all able to to be effective. There is no kind of politics infecting what you you are trying to do. But it's, they've got a big job on this summer. They've had a big job on from the start of it, and you know, the season's a couple of weeks away now from starting, and there is still plenty to do.
1: Um, Where do we go next? Then that is a a big question isn't it because the uh, the gloss of having got the takeover finished and Ampadu being confirmed will soon wear off and people will always be <laughs> clamouring for the next thing because that's what football's like isn't it yeah you, like... you
3: messaged me after the Ampadu signing and said it's all gone really quiet I should say I, that was I seven minutes, minutes yeah, yeah. Something, yeah something like that so it's all too um, quiet now too quiet that uh, serious point about that though it's not actually unreasonable for people to be saying okay what's next because the season's coming down the line and either of the the interviews that Fark has done so far, the, the the media that he did on the day that he was appointed, and also the the post match media that he did in Oslo, it was very apparent, and he's quite transparent in saying, "There's so much to be done here. We you know we have a hell of a lot of what to do, and it isn't ideal, it isn't perfect, and we need to need to get things in place." So people who are saying, "Okay, what comes after Ampadu are probably only echoing what he's saying behind the scenes. All the noise is suggested that from with Ampadu done, and from from that signing they would move on to a goalkeeper which I think is a pretty crucial position for them to to sort out. They do like Darlow, they really like Darlow up at Newcastle but the reports today that Bournemouth are starting to get close with Darlow as well, they have been keen on him for a while equally and I was talking earlier about the life of a Premier League club this is where you find out, isn't it, that you're trying to bid and compete with, with Bournemouth, they have the advantage of I guess not only Premier League money, they also have the advantage of at the moment having quite a tempting project with Ariola there as head coach so you find that you've got real competition
1: especially when it's like the chance to go sit on Bournemouth's bench more, more than likely rather than be a championship number one it's fascinating isn't it
3: particularly the, the life of yeah. a reserve keeper yeah I mean Darlow has done the championship hasn't he which is not to say that he wouldn't want to, to do it again but whether or not Ariola works and a lot, of, um, a lot of managerial coaching appointments in the Premier League don't work or don't work as they're supposed to I think it is quite tempting he's a you know, well thought of. He's he's an emerging coach. Very well, say very nearly came to Leeds. Leeds had a good go at him last season and did really good things with um, Viacano in Spain. So you could see the appeal of that. I think when it's your club who are starting or trying to sign somebody, and this applies to absolutely everybody, you want prospective or potential signings to see the best of the club in the way that you do, don't they? Uh, don't you? Like if I think back to Snodgrass when he went to Norwich, people would say to me. But if he stays at Leeds and gets us promoted, he'll be a legend at Leeds. And, you know, he'll forever be remembered for that. But sometimes it just comes down to clinical professional decisions. Yeah, that's that's what it is. So whereas you want your potential signings to see the bigger picture or the bigger picture as you see it, sometimes they will just go for the money. They'll go because they like the projects that, that's been offered elsewhere. Who knows what Darlow is being offered by Bournemouth? Who knows what they're promising him? Who knows if he'll even go there? But it has to be said that this summer, people have been taking the money more than ever before, haven't they? That seems like a lot of transfer deals this summer have been driven by who's paying what. Nubal is the
1: name. Is he at Borussia Dortmund? And, uh, he's at Bayern Munich. Bayern, oh, right, OK. Well, he's, yes. he's in Germany and there's rumours of a link to Stuttgart, maybe a loan. Uh, Leeds said to be in
3: for him. anything in that they've been quite a tight ship haven't they actually yeah no they, they have been again not denying that um, he's somebody they've thought about um, all the noises in Germany seem to be leaning towards him going to Stuttgart but we'll see they looked at James Trafford but Burnley are paying big money for, for him so that's that's taking him out of the equation there are others like Freddie Woodman um, Angus Gunn as well they're going to have to land on somebody and I think it's fair to assume that Farker is not going to want to go into the first game of the season not knowing who his first choice is going to be for the duration of it. Millie is back. It would be interesting to see whether Millie plays against Monaco at the weekend, friendly on Saturday, what what his involvement is. But this summer has been a bit of a vote of no confidence in him, hasn't it, in the sense that Leeds seem to be of the mind that he could do with going elsewhere. I, I suspect he probably feels the same. But the fact that they are looking for a new goalkeeper is transmitting the message to him that we no longer have the faith in you that, that we did before we no longer expect you to be first choice so they will listen to offers for him but as of the last time of asking they haven't actually had any or nothing fun for Melier so how that's going to develop is, is hard to say but what they can't afford to do is to end up with Melier playing a handful of games then suddenly a bid arrives that they want to take and find themselves scrambling last minute to try and get a goalkeeper in I think I think Farker will be of the mind that having your number one nailed down for August the 6th when Cardiff come, would be a very, very good idea. It feels like maybe we need a settled defence and backline,
2: doesn't it, this time, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued by the situation around Meli at the because We are all talking like he's already been sold and I do wonder what kind of market there is out out there for him as a young keeper who has badly lost his way at the end of last season, got dropped, has been relegated over the last two seasons, has conceded an awful lot of goals and who badly needs to regain his confidence and, you sort of think, for him on a personal level, it's a big risk going elsewhere and trying to rebuild your confidence and get back to your best form. And then, you know, seeing Leeds links with Darlow, I mean, he played for Newcastle the other night and gave a goal away uh, and didn't exactly look like the most comfortable goalkeeper with the ball at his feet, especially if that's what Farker's wanting his goalkeeper and his defence to do. And I just sort of think we have this potentially brilliant young goalkeeper would it not be easier to try and restore for, on both sides would it not be easier to get him back to confidence in Leeds but I suppose are they just wanting to sell him because they desperately need to sell I was going to say someone? money money FFP the, the money the money makes a difference
3: I mean he he has no release clause from what I'm told anyway like Nonto so you can I was going to say you can name your price not really I mean in the championship and after a couple of really difficult seasons for Millie you're probably looking for clubs actually to, to come to you rather than you saying you know, pay this and and you find, you know, it's not as if they can maximise his value in, in any way at the moment. I might have mentioned previously that one of the things that the, the the 49ers were never that keen on with recruitment at Leeds was the way in which from time to time, you would almost swerve away from what was the initial idea of what we need, what we want to sign, how much we want to, to pay to something completely different owing to pressures of the market or whatever else. It's kind of not the way it's, it's done in NFL. And clearly... Football, professional football is totally different to the NFL and you can never get away from the fact that in in football and in the transfer market, it is volatile and you do have scenarios where, for example, you just need a centre forward. You know, you need a centre forward, so you have to go for somebody and perhaps if you can't get who you're thinking of taking previously, then you you have to adapt. But I think what they wanted to get away from was, I guess, a, a lack of clarity in, in the thinking process behind what do we actually need and, w- and how much do we actually want to spend. And I guess with Melier, if at this stage or in a few weeks' time, you were reverting back to, actually, you're going to play, you're going to be first choice, having given him the message all summer that you're probably going to go and we don't really mind if you do and we'll, we'll take the money for you, that's the same thing, isn't it? That's You're you kind of swerving between ideas and I think at this stage they really do have to, and I think they will, but they really do have to go for a new keeper because they made it perfectly plain that that's what they want. Yeah, you're right there about no, i have maybe a clear idea
1: about what they want to do because you think about the example of Cody Gakpo turning into Bambadieng, turning into Willy Nonto, yeah, and just all the pieces ever shifting. And no, it's but it's you, a difficult see, dynamic. I,
3: I think more specifically as well that week the the program notes, without wanting to label these, of saying we're, we're pretty much okay up front between Rodrigo Bamford and Gelhart to suddenly mm, we're not really are we? And then you're chasing two, three different people at the back end of the window I think that's the sort of thing they For want, different to reasons, want to but, avoid and, yeah. and with Melie as well you know you now run the risk that if you were to turn back to him and say okay we're going to give you a go we're going to carry on with you as first choice and then it doesn't work well or it doesn't look great or you start to to doubt it again then you really are going going around in circles and the fact that it's been kind of you know it's kind of been laid out as one of the positions that they, they do want to recruit in tells you everything
0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com
0: slash host.
1: Into midfield, just returning to that point and the fact that I, I suspect we need greater reinforcements in the middle of the park, particularly because Farker likes to do a lot of short passing, doesn't he? Interchangeable passing through the middle. So you need people who can do that. The lad at Sunderland, Edward Michout,
3: was it, was it Sunderland? Yes, was on. Yeah, was it Sunderland, Sunderland from PSG? I don't know how much there is in that, um, but he has Championship experience. Clearly, pretty talented, talented player. The midfield's weird, isn't it? Because it's still not totally clear how that's going to figure out. They they they'd looked at re-signing Adam Forshaw on a deal that was reduced. You know, was kind of reflecting his injury issues, but that. Hasn't been agreed yet, or hasn't been signed yet, and people have seen the story in the Daily Mail earlier this week about Saudi interest in him, which is genuine. Other other alternatives for him, Tyler Adams. There's still no kind of definitive answer on is he staying, is he going. One of the things that will be interesting to find out from Fark at the weekend is where Adams is at in terms of fitness after his, his hamstring operation at the back end of last season, because clearly that is relevant too. They are going to need the right players in there. I, my gut feeling is that Ampadu will play as a midfielder. Again, we need to ask Farka about this and see what he says. Uh, I think they see him as versatile, can, can do either job as he has done in previous clubs. But I would have thought that that will be one person for that area. JB seems to be pushing through. I think will be will be far more involved. But yeah, they they need some bodies there. What about left-back? Just to return to the back line, just occurred to me that we've... Uh... We've seen no movement on that just yet either. Yeah, they they do like Charlie Taylor. Again, this is this is where we need to sort of quiz Farka a little bit because Filippo is still in the building. He didn't play in Oslo because he had he had picked up a bit of a knock. That comes um, as a surprise, Phil. Picked up a bit of a knock. Mm. Yeah. Um, Can you detect the sarcasm in my voice? Yeah, so slightly. Yes, but where is Farka at with him? Because the the thing for Farka now is that he will have obviously assessed the squad before he came in in the way that coaches do but he's now had the chance to actually see people in the flesh and to get to know them a bit to kind of figure out their attitude to to work them out slightly so so how is he seeing that? I mean I still think that they need to recruit in that area absolutely I think somebody like Charlie Taylor would be pretty much bang on for their taking the politics out of the, the equation Yeah well it just seems to me that
1: if we are to get another keeper to kind of signal to Melier that he's going to be replaced it's probably time to move on can we do the same at left back? Bless well, Junior. I've got no axe to grind with Junior Furpo, particularly. seems like a nice guy, but I'm I I'm concerned about his football and abilities. So I'd like us to have somebody you, who's good if, at left back.
3: If you sign a, a good championship standard or better left back, then where does Furpo fit? I think the answer is he doesn't. In um, Spain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great answer. Or Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could be, could know, be. Why not? Everybody else is good. You can there. have him for 40 million euros. But well, this is the thing you see. I mean, you start to wonder, actually, how much money could you prize out of Saudi clubs? The only thing is they do, not totally true in, in all cases, but the big money seems to be going on players that are fairly recognisable, don't they? And I don't know whether football really falls into that category.
2: I, I mean, you say that, they're going for the real glamour names of Joel Robles who's playing in the Saudi second tier, now going for Adam Forshaw. I was making a joke. Uh, in the daily email last night about who they're going to go for next, Vernon and Anita, and mm-hmm. then I googled Vernon and Anita, and it turns out he is actually playing in Saudi Arabia. There you go, <laughs> so...
3: there you go. And Helder Costa was there before anyone else. You see, trailblazer. Yeah, yeah. What about Helder Costa? Because he's been back. Surely he's not staying, is he? I want to imagine. Doesn't feel like it. No. Yeah. Um, the guidance at the start of the summer was that they would probably try and do another deal. or Mendes would try and do another deal for him in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, some, somewhere like that.
1: Yeah, and um, when you've got George Mendes in your corner, you know you're probably going to be all right. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, you probably are one way or another. Two weeks to the big kickoff. It's not long, is it? Just a fraction over two weeks. Um, we've seen the announcement this morning that uh, reciprocal ticket prices have been agreed, which is Yes, I better. think that's a good idea. And it? lower than I thought, because the rumour that was swirling was about 25, 24 quid. It's actually 21 quid for adults, which I think is very, very good indeed.
3: Well, I, think that's, I think that's very reasonable, isn't yeah. it? You know, you, you a price like that, you can kind of say, well, nicely done. You know, that's making it accessible for people. There, there comes a lower limit where you can't really expect clubs to drop below particularly if at the same time you're kind of saying same players change the squad this that, that there doesn't have to be to be money flowing in but no it's it's for the best that because some of like, some of the prices getting quoted, and it's like the the price of tickets over in Oslo it's absolutely ludicrous yeah totally ludicrous. But we don't escape the fact that the, the tickets in the same stand
1: for Leeds fans are 47 quid for adults yes it's, it's, and it's, that is it's insane there's absolutely lot. there's no justification for it I know Leeds United is not a charity and we don't have the Premier League TV money but some sense has to come into it, surely. And that just feels ridiculous. It's a lot of cash.
2: It definitely is. That was my uh, reaction to seeing the reciprocal pricing for the away fans. Like, that is very good. But what about the home fans <laughs> getting swindled still?
1: Well, actually, yeah, the middle paragraph is a short statement on the website. Pleased to announce. Then the second paragraph is, the EFL allow reciprocal ticket offers to be agreed between clubs and we will continue to work with all of the teams in the Skybit Championship to try and offer a better deal for travelling supporters. But what about the home What about the home fans in that stand? Who were paying forty-seven quid for the
3: equivalent seat a few blocks over? Yeah, it's it, it's a problem. It's an issue. I think I would assume that there will be quite a number of reciprocal deals. Seen either that, or there will be a huge amount of complaining about prices. I, I noticed some grumbling from the Huddersfield end a couple of days ago. But there's no denying that that's a lot of cash for the tickets. As I say, football is now though in this problem area of everybody wanting to see big investment in the team but ideally wanting ticket prices to stay really low. I feel like in the Premier League, that's a fight that you should definitely have because it's an active choice by Premier League clubs to basically spend everything that they've got when they already have massive income coming in. But down in the Championship, it becomes more questionable, doesn't it? Because basically everybody loses money in the Championship and you only have to go back to Leeds' last accounts when they came up to see how much clubs do lose and can lose. Um, It's a lot. I worked out based on the 3,000 capacity of the away end and 23
1: games that if you capped it, uh, I mean, it's great that it is 21 quid, I should say that, but if they capped it in the Premier League, like the same level of the Premier League, which is 30 quid, isn't it, for away fans, the most extra you could make for all those seats all season, assuming it was filled by adults and adults only, would be 1.17 million pounds. So is that to be sniffed? at? or you know, it's, it's in football
3: in terms. It's not a lot of cash. That is it's it. Not is it.
1: No. It does make you wonder whether it's it's worth it for
3: the? I mean, it won't be long before somebody in Saudi is earning that a week. Yeah, they probably are, aren't they? Maybe already. Yeah, they probably
1: are. You looking forward to the start of it all again, Rob? We were chatting to Moscow on the on the weekly show this week, and
2: he was. He, I think he a bit more time off. Oh, I don't know. I'm. I'm at that does, point. Just more need to happen? Yeah, but I'm at that point of pre season now where I'm like, if I could just wake up and it's the Cardiff game. I'd take that and we could just find out who's playing for Leeds and and, and almost the way, the way Farka's talking about well, well we probably only know the team at the end of August I'm like right if I could wake up now and it's September the 1st that'd be great I did see a tweet um, yesterday saying it'd be much easier for, for Fabrizio Romano if he just Waited until September the first and saw who was playing for which teams, and it just saved himself an awful lot of time. And I, that's kind of how I feel right now.
3: Yeah. Ah, uh, but that, that that makes me quite sad hearing that though, because that takes everything back to transfers, doesn't it? And there are a lot of games in August, and and I'm looking forward to the competitive football getting going again. Because however short the summer has been, as soon as you get into preseason friendlies, you do just think to yourself, "Be better off if this was just for real." You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it really would It's. If I think back to other pre-seasons, going back 10, 15 years ago, at a time when it wasn't as if there were no tactics in the game, but coaches and teams weren't quite as tied to style and identity and philosophy as they, they were before, you did tend to get a lot of friendlies that were just kind of kickabouts in the sense that there were loads of players out of possession, always loads of substitutions, it wasn't necessarily particularly structured, and that whole thing about getting minutes into your legs seemed to, to apply absolutely. Whereas... With Farka in Oslo, you could see straight away some of what he was trying to do and some of how they were they were working tactically. And I think I, I suspect at some point you're probably going to ask me what do we expect of the Monaco game. I think we'll probably see much of the same from Leeds. It'll be passing out from the back. It'll be the same kind of four two three one system, unless he, he really surprises us. And I think on that basis, we'll be able to kind of gauge how it's working in comparison to how it went in Oslo. I mean, you're not going to be able to draw definitive conclusions. But these, these friendlies are definitely worth watching. Yeah, if Sam Greenwood's social media output is anything to go by, he's flogging them
1: hard because they were all asleep on beanbags, weren't they? Yeah. W- Willie Nonto included, actually.
3: Yeah, well, I'm told that he is flogging them hard, except clubs never ever say to you, "Yes, yeah, just giving them loads of time off. Like, they're not they're not really doing much, are they? You know, and nobody wants to portray the image of... Um, of a pre-season camp which is a complete doddle but no I don't think they're getting it easy Sam Greenwood's just
2: cropped out all the bottles of lager that are just thrown around
3: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely hammered Uh, well Rob's
1: here today and Rob's in his um, his Castellon shirt which he acquired in Castellon when you went to see Pablo and that um, neatly ties into the fact that Pablo has retired now hasn't he bless him I think probably Rafinha aside my favourite player of the modern era oh he's he's well above Rafinha I was going to say Rafinha aside surprised you see. no I'm not, that. I'm not necessarily putting Rafinha at the top I just I hadn't thought I hadn't thought, I had to think about it in the car on the way here this morning I thought
3: oh it's totally legitimate to yeah. pick somebody else you know, yeah, who, who
1: do I love from the modern era and I love Pablo and I really like Rafinha as well and I, I didn't think to separate them and what separates them I just thought
2: those are the ones that have really captured my my heart if you like you, you can't knock success can you and mm. I think Pablo he, he just elevated himself by just doing what he did when he did it and when it was most needed whenever leads for about three Four years, maybe he, he just carried leads in the moments when they really needed some inspiration. It was, it was always him, wasn't it? It was,
1: yeah. And I got back to when we did the Phil Hay show, Phil, and we went up to Thor Arch and we spoke to Pablo mm. and just being in the same room. He's a lovely isn't, fella, yeah. isn't he? He Really is. It was, it was great. And very rarely get starstruck, but with Pablo, he's just got that. He's got an aura about him as Pablo. It's Like a, it's the magical aura, isn't it? El Mago, isn't it? He, he. Um, when we spoke to him, he said, "Well, we asked him how." Do you do what you do? Mm-hmm.
3: How is it that you Partic- have that? Particularly the passes that, that you shouldn't be able to see. And not now, making a mermaid from 30 yards. And yeah, stuff, yeah, I mean, I always think of the Harrison goal though. You know, that, that ball from deep. And in, in a game that he did a really good job of, of settling Hernandez. You know Which of, which game was that, sorry? It did, I'm pretty sure this was during the COVID running. The Leeds beat Fulham 3-0 at Ellen Road. Have I got that right? I think I have. Yes, when he sort of chipped it over the That's right. Defense. So, so yeah. the, one of the goals in that was a blind pass to Harrison who was running about 20, 30 yards in front of him. That high ball over the top which seemed to be one of those ah, yes. that it, you could only do if you knew what you were doing. So therefore, when we went to see him at Thorpe Arch, the question was, how do you do it? And the answer seemed to be, well, I just kind of do. Yeah, well, um, it, it was, I, is see, I see the pitch. What p- geniuses see, tend to say, is
1: "I can." Yeah, he said, I can see the pitch ahead of time almost. He knows where everyone is. It's almost like a, a sixth sense. Yeah, I, like.
3: I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm doing him down there actually, because what he used to say was, uh, or what he did say to us was that he used to just constantly scan and monitor the pitch. So he's always looking before the ball was coming to his feet. He was always looking at what was around him, so it, or you know, further up the pitch. So he knew exactly what he could try to hit. Which wasn't to say that he was always going to be able to hit it, but that one stands out particularly. As I mean, I, you could actually do a great montage of Hernandez's ludicrously good passes. There's a fantastic one. Um, I think against Burton Albion, where he plays a ball from the, the touchline in front of the dugout. He's basically on the halfway line. Through threw about four or five players into the run of Ducara, who blesses Cotton socks <laughs> looks like he's dragging a caravan at the speed he's going, you know, but gets brought down and, and leads um leads when win a penalty. But there was absolutely loads of that. Just ridiculously good balls, assists, whatever else where you thought, we're actually, it, this is a, a quality player anyway, you know, really classy player, but we're actually seeing the best of him. You know, yeah. the best of his career were those two seasons, eighteen nineteen nineteen twenty when I think either side of that, there were periods where it was more difficult for him. Certainly the initial spell under Gary Monk was hard for him to settle until he he, he did. And then obviously the Premier League season uh, after promotion was not a great one for him at all. He, he wasn't involved in much him and else that had that to do during the Leicester game but 1819, 1920, I said on Twitter it's just a total force of nature everything he did was fantastic. That It's the pass at
1: Stoke for me that's the one that's the moment you know the one for Dallas to run on to yeah it's it could have been measured with a slide rule in terms of its perfection it's one of those goals that I, I every time I look
2: at it I watch it and I kind of ache for how good it is. Yeah there was another one Against in the Cardiff game, which the one where we went 3 0 up and blew it and drew 3 all, But I was sat up in the Gods in the East Upper for that game. And I think it was the opening goal for Helder Costa, where Leeds broke and Pablo got the ball on the right. And Helder Costa's the complete opposite side of the pitch. And because we were up in the Gods, we almost had like a bird's eye view of the pitch. It was They're like watching Sabutio. Yeah. It was like playing FIFA or something. And you sort of think, yeah, pass it there, pass it there, he's in. But obviously, he's in the chaos of a game. He's on the. Pitch level is on the opposite side of the pitch, but he just played it first time, and Costa doesn't have to break stride. And it is that thing of that was phenomenal. That that was. How yeah. have you seen that? And yeah. you know, I can see it up here, but I can see the whole pitch. Because I going to say, if you've ever been um, down at pitch level and watched a
1: game from right at the very very front, it's a completely different view. I often oh, wonder. Massively. I yeah. often wonder how coaches see what they see from from down there because I can just see a sea of bodies when I'm down there. I never, I never like being that low down. I like being slightly higher back where I can sort of scan it, like you say, and watch it, like
3: be like FIFA. Well, certain FA Cup games, Accrington being one last season, because the press box tends to be quite small, you have to spill out of it. So we were virtually on the front row of the stand at Accrington, which means that, and you do have certain pitches as well which rise. They kind of slope when you come up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can find yourself at a really low level, and it is extremely difficult to see what's going on clearly, and it's also difficult to know when a ball is hit, particularly a long-range pass, at the moment it's hit, if you're high, say, in the gantry, like Moscow at, at Ellen Road, you can tell straight away if a ball looks like a good one because you've got a full overview of, of everything. But down at that level, you really can't tell. So it used to fascinate me that Bielsa would watch on a stool because what you're doing by doing that is taking yourself down even lower. And VS Boas, when he was at Chelsea, used to do this thing where he watched the game crouching down and he used to say, I see it better that way. said, no never... Never quite convinced whether that was just the massive bluff or or what. But Bielsa seemed to be able to read the game despite not having that. I mean, he would never, ever go to the director's box or go to the press box. Steve McLaren, when he was at Derby, used to always spend the first half sat up by us in the the press box to to see everything. And you're right, some of those, I, I guess some of those passes from Hernandez... And I remember the nutmeg he did against Charlton, which was from about five, six yards to <laughs> You know, it's like so far away that it should have been physically impossible for somebody in front of him not to have just put their feet together and, and blocked it. I guess you just have to trust your instinct, don't you? And trust that you can, can do it. But none of it was ever by chance. And I think when we spoke to him and he was talking about looking at what's around him, always trying to have his, his head up and be aware of what his options are before the ball comes to his feet. When you went back and watched some of the goals, you really started to understand what he meant the only thing is i don't think you can you can try to teach that but i think you're either good at it or you're not yeah you? and it, there was just that feeling with him when we were chatting to him of him saying it's just something i'm able to do it's just there it's, the, it's that genius it's that unknowable quality, and he, and, and it, he yeah? was never the sort who would say and you guys are just mere mortals but that's <laughs> that's basically how it is yeah never,
1: never have i felt more like a mere mortal but it actually gave me so much more respect for footballers to be able to do what it is that they do. Because it's easy to be a coach and a manager when you're sat in the stand, isn't it? And you see things from there and you get annoyed at them for not executing this extremely hard, yeah. technical skill perfectly. At
3: incredible pace. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the other thing when you, you sit pitch side is you get a far better impression of how quickly the game's moving and how athletic footballers are. And you know how, you know in the way that you get frustrated towards the end of a game when a player looks like they're, they're blown out and they've, they've got nothing left? If you actually watch how hard 90 minutes of football is you totally totally understand it but i mean his his last season at leeds was a really difficult one personally as well he was saying that his his wife was pregnant at the time and they were very concerned about whether they were going to lose the baby she was back in spain he was in england i think it it was all it was all quite tough and although i think the the return to Castellan was as much as much a result of how little he'd played and the fact that you know, in that little period things between him and Bielsa hadn't been fantastic. I think personally it was a good move for him as well. And they, you know, they were his club. They are his club. Yeah. Yeah, and you've seen it right through to the end with them, which is is a nice way to bow out, isn't it?
1: I was gonna say I think I think where when it comes to Pablo's genius, I don't know if much like the Bielsa era, I guess was he was he the, the symbol, the totem of that? I didn't appreciate it fully until we've now had a little bit of time and distance placed between us and it. Like I think I appreciate Pablo more now because we had two absolute bin fires of seasons in the last
3: two years. I, th- I think I, I think I did. I think is, it's sometimes hard more, to appreciate things in the I, moment. I, I, guess I, is I suspect saying. that's probably more true of Clique for me than Hernandez. I, I, I mean, there's quite a lot of players who bounce out of the Bielsa era as being emblems of it. Hernandez definitely one. Clique is is absolutely one as well. They're, they're the two that really come to mind. But you could equally say the same of people like Ailing and others, you know. But I think with Hernandez, I remember when we went to the the Charlton game because the title was won and we'd written about a thousand pieces about promotion and else and everything else but I said what do you want to do and I said well I'm going to do a piece on Hernandez because I have a sneaky feeling that we've like we've absolutely seen the best of him but I have a sneaky feeling that we might not see this from him again like the Premier League's going to be difficult he's you know he's starting to to get on a little bit now will he play that much will he be as as effective and I read that back and it was kind of saying this has been this has been amazing watching him like it has been you, you basically seeing somebody peak in front of your eyes, even though a few years earlier he'd been in the Middle East and, to all intents and purposes, looked like he was kind of wrapping up his his career. And then lo and behold, Leeds do him for not an awful lot of money, and he is, I think, the absolute star of the of the BLC years. Do you fully appreciate him and oh, well, cos because
1: you made your trip to Catalonia, <laughs> which by the way, it's a great um extra ball episode for members subscribers.
2: Go go find that. Because you were just totally fangirling, yeah. It, you said about being whole. starstruck, and it's weird because you you do meet footballers, and it's like, oh yeah, you are just like a guy, aren't you? Yeah. And yeah. even and he like he's very unassuming. He's he just came out with his wash bag under his arm. But me and my friend Sam, who I went with, we were stood around waiting for him for about half hour. I felt sick. I was like, oh god, like because he I just adore him. He's my favorite ever footballer. But um, and then yeah, I, I we got a photo with him, and he was so lovely. He just chatted with us for like. 15-20 minutes uh, and kept thanking us for coming but yeah we got a photo with him and I put my arm around him and I could feel my arm shaking and he could definitely like recognise that as well but he was just dead nice about it but then I looked over to my friend Sam who was taking the photo and his, arm, his hand was just like <laughs> out of his phone it was just pathetic but and we really um, like we, we walked out and we just like didn't even speak to each other for 10 minutes we were just like awestruck and then we both broke the silence by just sort of swooning we just kind of like, oh, <laughs> it was yeah, he was, was so nice. But that that's because of the way it kind of ended for him, for Leeds that it was in lockdown and um, he didn't really get the proper farewell. And that last season was a bit disappointing for him. I did like, I just felt compelled. I was like, I have to see him play again. And when he when it he announced that he uh, retired the other day, like I was genuinely sad. But I also I was just so happy that I got to see him play one more time. And you know, you could tell that physically he was slowing down, and it wasn't the greatest standard. But there was a moment in the second half where. He did right in front of us. He puffed his cheeks out and nutmegged someone, and it was just like, "Yeah, that that's, that's been worth the whole trip." Like, uh. you can retire from being a football fan at the point. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been Isn't terrible it? since then. I, so really,
1: I, I really love, <laughs> I, well, I really love how you describe it like that because and that's what the point I was getting at about maybe the last couple of years placing him and the Bielsa era into context because. I can't say since Rafinha, there's been anybody who's made me go like that, who who makes who would make me swoon and think you're just there's something
3: unknowable and genius-like about you. The, the very salt of the earth, though, you know his. Because um, I went over and did a piece on Castellon shortly after we launched, I think it was 2019, and it was about the fact that um, Hernandez had been involved in the, and his dad had been involved in the takeover of the club, but they were pretty much bankrupt and, and about to go out of business. And you know, his his parents live in a. Really nice, but pretty modest three story house just not far from the stadium. Hernandez lives locally. His wife, who is just sort of casually the sister of Sergio Garcia, same again, like there's no kind of celebrity edge with them at all. They just, she once said to me, like, Hernandez is super, super proud of his roots in Castellon. It's the only place realistically that he would want to settle when he retires. And there was always a high chance that he would go back there because he does think a lot of the club. And you go, like Rob will know this, and the stadium is in no way the Etihad or the Emirates at all. You know, it's really old. It's proper, like, classic lower league Spanish ground. They get a really good support, actually, to Castellon, But you got the sense of a club that was kind of being, not run by mates, but it was, it had a kind of, and this is a compliment, it had a kind of amateur feel to it in the way that everybody operated. But one of the staff members there was a friend of Hernandez's and they were, they were kids together growing up. Um, they, they played at Castellan together when they were young and he's long since retired but he said to me this back in 2019 he said I, I look at Hernandez playing for Leeds at the moment and what he's doing and I just think you have to be joking like how are you how are you still able to to do this and and why are you still so good and some a few people have said to me yeah but it was the championship and my attitude to that is just who cares really it doesn't doesn't matter does it like seeing quality football and seeing quality moments is kind of irrespective of the level that it's at and it doesn't have to be the World Cup final in, in order to be to be relevant and I think that was really true Hernandez.
1: that's very true of I think the season that's coming up because I know that Farker likes to play decent football that's maybe I think where my, my anticipation for the new season is coming that finally we'll see a return to something like possession football which just turned this crowd on so much didn't it when, when Bielsa was here and it doesn't have to be exactly the same but if we can see some nice football some nice moments some good, good moves that make you go oh that was lovely that's all I really want more than anything. I hated the Premier League <laughs> with Pablo. I, I hated <laughs> it
3: so much that we're trying to get back there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, then. it's the
1: thing; is it's better than the alternative, isn't it? Because you can't you can't be the relegated club with parachute payments and a bigger turnover forever. Eventually,
3: you'll just regress to the mean. I, I'm not convinced that Manchester City's treble last season will have generated more satisfaction for them than the 1920 season when Leeds went up. Or I, I guess you could say those two seasons back to back, eighteen nineteen. 1920. I just think in the end it it's a case of what you're looking for isn't it and and that doesn't necessarily have to be trophies and it doesn't necessarily have to be the best of the best players it's just something it's, that it's, beauty, it's isn't something it? that feels feels good. It's what Bielsa was always after it was beauty. Mm-hmm. Like that transcends the result. And everybody's interpretation of beauty is totally different some people do base that purely on what you win. Getting yeah, in fucking Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Boom. Weston throw this as far as you can. <laughs> yeah. But some people do base that on what's in your trophy cabinet and that's fine, like, that's a totally fair way to look at football. But I guess if you follow Leeds or if you go further down and you follow Hearts, as I do, you're not going to get many trophies, are you, in the grand scheme of things? And especially not now, now that you need mega, mega money to, to win them. So you have to find your pleasure in other ways. Right, Monaco at the weekend. We don't need to say a great deal about that, more than we've already said, I
1: think, that uh, it's a friendly, it'll be played out like a friendly Maybe. There'll be a result. Some yeah. players will play. You after that? Yes. On your yes, doorstep, isn't it? Yeah, up the road. On yeah. your doorstep. Good. Um, so
3: w- should we have a chat on Monday about that and reflect on what Absolutely, like yeah. It can see- be our first proper Monday club, 15 minutes, that is done on a Monday and, and it's done you- in 15 minutes. And then you
1: are pissing off for uh, for about 10 days. Yes. So there will be Monday's show where we'll reflect on Monaco, then you're away the day after, back in time for Cardiff. So we'll tr- maybe try and sort out something that morning. Um,
3: yes. You know the drill. It'll all go off. It of course it will. As soon as you go away, it does, doesn't it?
1: Thanks for joining us. I'm taking one for the team, basically. Yeah, (laughs) I've gone on holiday, so things happen. Work shy—that's the word I was after. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining us for this one. We will be back on Monday. We'll see you soon. The Square Ball Podcast.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen